Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome, everybody, to the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group December podcast, where we are going to cover today's FCC open meeting. There are four items up there. Uh, and my colleagues, uh, Chip Yorgaitis, Hank Kelly, and Mike Dover, and I will cover each of those items, giving you a sort of synopsis overview. Uh, but before we get there, there are a couple of items from November that are very important. One on broadband labels, an order on those labels, and a second order on affordable connectivity program data collection. And Mike Dover is going to cover that. So with that introduction, Mike, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Tom. On November 17th, the commission issued an order and FNPRM requiring broadband labels. This is the so-called broadband nutrition label, uh, which establishes a requirement to display broadband labels as directed by the 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. At a high level, these new rules require broadband providers to display labels at the point of sale for mass-marketed retail, fixed, and mobile standalone broadband service offering. The broadband labels employ a uniform format prescribed by the commission to facilitate consumer comparison of plans and are designed to be similar to FDA nutrition labels on food and EPA labels on new cars. The rules established by the Commission for Broadband Labels require specific information about each individual broadband plan, including information such as speed, latency, data caps, and other information. These labels, as I mentioned, are required to be displayed at a provider's point of sale, which the commission defines as the location where a consumer begins to investigate and compare broadband service plans available to them at their location. However, it's important to note that there is no requirement to include broadband labels on mass-marketed channels and non-geographic specific advertisements. The label requirement kicks in when a consumer views specific broadband plans available at the consumer's service location. The commission says that occurs, quote, often after the consumer enters address information on the provider's website or conveys it to a sales representative to see what plans are available, end quote. Once that threshold is met, A broadband label must appear on the provider's primary advertising web page, which identifies the plans available to the consumer. In addition, the broadband labels are required to be displayed at other channels through which broadband services sold, including provider-owned retail locations, third-party-owned retail locations, and even orally over the phone if the consumer does not have access to the internet. 
in addition, the rules require that the provider display a consumer's broadband label on the customer's online account portal for that customer's plan. The broadband rules also require that the labels be accessible to persons with disabilities at all points of sale and must be provided in English and any other language in which the provider markets its service. In addition, there's uh, several other requirements that are detailed in the rules uh, and the order, uh, including providing the information from the labels in machine-readable format in a dedicated URL, uh, archiving labels for plants that are no longer available, and providing archived labels to existing customers upon request within 30 days. Just briefly, we'd like to go over what's included in the broadband label. Uh, the rules and the order are obviously more detailed, and we'd suggest that if you're interested, uh, give us a call or take a look at the order uh, more closely for the specifics. In short, the rules require a specific format and a specific set of data to be included in the labels. Providers' labels must use the format provided by the commission and must display each label in close proximity to the associated plan advertisement available to that consumer. Importantly, labels cannot be made available through a hyperlink to a separate page or through pop-up windows. And while there's no specific font size requirements, the commission cautions that providers must display the labels to be viewable on any device, and that includes mobile devices. Briefly, uh, the contents of the label um, described in the rules include uh, a requirement to include a plan name. The plan name does not need to include a speed, uh, but if it does, the speed name has to match the speed contained in the label. Uh, the label has to contain the retail price of the plan. This is the base monthly retail price without additional taxes and fees for the standalone broadband service offering. Um, in addition, a provider must state if the base monthly price is an introductory price, um, the rate that applies after the in introductory timeframe, and when that timeframe ends. The label must include a notation on additional charges and terms that are not included in the listed base monthly retail price, along with any fees that the consumer must pay at the time of purchase. So this list of fees on the label includes discretionary fees and monthly charges, and, and include things like fees for rental and leasing of modem or other equipment, um, and activation fees, any required deposits, installation charges, or other fees uh, related to the terms of service. The label permits a provider to provide a hyperlink to discounts and bundled offerings available to that plan. Uh, these would include discounts for paperless billing, auto pay, other discounts, and bundled options if available. These are not listed on the label, uh, it's a hyperlink to some other location. Uh, in addition, the label identifies whether or not the provider participates in the ACP, the Affordable Connectivity Program, and discloses uh, the typical speed and latency for the broadband plan, um, as well as discloses charges for uh, 
for use of data in excess of the plan's amount, identifying the additional amount of charge uh, by increment of additional data. The labels are also required to include any uh, reductions in service notations, such as throttling related to uh, the plan. In addition, the labels are required to have uh, references to consumers to uh, information both about the labels and about the providers. So the labels include links to the provider's network management practices and privacy policies, a link and telephone number for the provider's customer support, a link to the commission website uh, where information about the, the labels is, is, will be contained. And at the bottom, the uh, label must contain what's called a unique plan identifier, which identifies whether or not the specific plan is fixed or mobile. It must contain the provider's FRN um, and a unique 15 alphanumeric sequence that identifies the plan. These unique plan identifiers are unique to each standalone broadband plan and cannot be reused by the provider. So these rules that I just described uh, for larger providers with, uh, these are providers with more than 100,000 broadband subscribers um, based on the provider's most recent FCC form 477 and aggregated all, over all of the provider's affiliates. Um, the rules go into effect six months following review by the OMB for smaller providers. Uh, the rules go into effect uh, generally one year following review of, by the OMB. Now, in addition, the order contained uh, further notice of proposed rulemaking as to several items that the commission is proposing to improve the broadband labels. And just briefly, um, the commission asked whether or not specific criteria should be adopted uh, to ensure that the labels are accessible by persons with disabilities, uh, whether or not additional uh, language requirements uh, should be adopted, and uh, whether or not um, the label format can be changed, such as uh, by including interactive uh, displays in the label itself. Comments on the Commission's proposals are due on or before January 17th and reply comments are due on or before February 14th. And so the second order that Tom mentioned is the ACP Transparency Data Collection Order and FNPRM. Uh, that was uh, uh, issued by the commission on November 23rd, and it details the information that ACP uh, providers uh, these are providers participating in the Affordable Connectivity Program. Uh, this is the information that they must submit annually as part of their participation. So all providers participating in the ACP that have enrolled subscribers are required to submit the information I'm about to describe. There are no exclusions for providers. Uh, overall, the ACP providers are required to provide information aggregated by zip code. And this is important. There was a question as to whether or not the commission would be requiring NLAB-based subscriber level individual collection of data. And uh, the commission has instead opted for an aggregate collection method. As part of the collection, ACP providers must submit 
the unique identifier from the broadband label that I just described for each broadband plan with an ACP, with an ACP subscriber, and the ACP provider must do this aggregated by each zip code in which they have ACP subscribers. Um, and where a broadband label does not exist under the rules that I described earlier under the broadband labels order, such as for uh, grandfathered or legacy plans, or where a broadband label does not uniquely identify a plan, such as for bundled service plans, providers are required to create and submit a unique identifier. And as I'm about to describe, uh, many of the characteristics which are contained on the broadband labels for any plan to which an ACP household subscribes. Uh, the provider created unique identifier should be uh, the same format as I described previously on the broadband labels orders. Part, part of the collection, in addition to the unique identifier, the ACP providers must submit uh, information about each broadband plan uh, that ACP participants participate in, and therefore the commission requires submission of uh, pricing elements um, in generally the same format as on the broadband label. So this includes the base monthly price, uh, the monthly whether or not the monthly price is an introductory rate, itemization of recurring monthly charges, and one-time fees. However, there's no requirement under the ACP collection to provide offered discounts or the amount of the government taxes, but optional fields are going to be provided if the provider voluntarily wants to identify those discounts. In addition, providers are also required to submit information about um, equipment and associated equipment, such as modems and routers um, under the ACP plan as part of the collection. Um, and providers are required to submit information about whether or not a plan requires associated equipment, and if the required associated equipment is included in the monthly base price. For bundled services, providers are not required to itemize prices for components that are not related to the broadband service. So that would be DVR, set-top boxes, uh, phone chargers. Providers must submit the total number of ACP households subscribed to each identified plan by zip code, as I mentioned, uh, and this will be uh, aggregated data as of a single snapshot within that zip code. Uh, so the order requires providers to submit that information, but also subdivide the information by submitting subscriber information for each plan to identify subscribers that are enrolled in the Commission's Lifeline program that participate in the uh, ACP Tribal Enhanced Benefit and that receive enhanced benefit for co high cost areas. In addition, um, ACP providers have the option to submit the total number of subscribers um, that are on the introductory pricing plans and on one-time limited promotional plans, the total number of subscribers that paid a setup or activation fee, and the total number of subscribers that are paying zero after all discounts and ACP benefits are applied. With regard to the plan characteristics, just briefly I'll go over some of the, uh, the unique items um, from the ACP collection order. Um, the 
ACP provider uh, must include the maximum advertised speed, bundled characteristics, and associated equipment requirements for each plan. Um, and in addition, some of the fields on a broadband label may not be applicable to legacy plans and will therefore be optional. In addition, uh, the typical speed and upload speed and typical latency data that providers include on broadband labels will be included. In addition um, to that information, ACP providers must submit the uh, advertised speed. Uh, information on data cap uh, limits um, must be included. And uh, bundled characteristics, identifying whether a service is bundled and the type of bundle, such as whether or not the bundle includes voice or data, um, and then information about that bundle will be collected as part of the ACP collection. That includes the total number of voice minutes and the total number of texts uh, allowed it, uh, as part of the bundle, which must be submitted as part of the collection. However, it's noteworthy the collection does not require providers to submit information regarding the specifics of video uh, if it's part of the bundle, as those services are not directly supported by the ACP benefit. Um, now, just to talk about timing, uh, the first collection was delegated to the WCB uh, to establish um, uh, the inaugural collection date. Um, there's specifics on when that will be um, in the order, they, which says that it should be set no earlier than 90 days after the commission announces the OMB has uh, uh, completed any required review. Um, and the collections will occur annually thereafter based on the snapshot date uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and it's important to note that once submitted, the aggregated information that's submitted as part of the collection will be made publicly available, but aggregated on a state level, non-provider specific basis um, using average or median prices of plans in which subscribers are enrolled within designated download speed tiers and data um, tiers. Uh, in addition, uh, the order include a, included a further notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, it, uh, the commission seeks comments related to um, improving the ACP um, information collection, specifically seeking information uh, from the industry as to whether or not there's value in sub uh, subscriber level data collection, whether or not um, additional areas should be collected, and uh, whether or not more granular information should be uh, collected as part of the ACP collections process. And uh, comments will be due on those proposals 30 days after publication, and reply comments are due 45 days after um, publication in the Federal Register. All okay. right, Mike, thank you so much for going through those two items. Uh, I'm going to pick up now with another proceeding that uh, came out of the Infrastructure Act. And this one deals with digital discrimination. Uh, and this was mandated in the Infrastructure Act uh, for the FCC to adopt rules, uh, implementing the law by November, 2023. So we are still about a year away from that deadline. Now, the law directs the FCC 
to facilitate equal access to broadband internet access services, taking into account the issues of technical and economic feasibility, and they are to uh, include within facilitating equal access, preventing digital discrimination, and identifying steps to eliminate it where it occurs. Um, this is the specific direction to the FCC upon which it is to adopt rules. And the law adds that equal access, and this is quite important because the Congress uh, was very detailed and specific about what equal access is, means the equal opportunity for subscribers in a given area to access an offered service that provides comparable qualities of service and terms and conditions. Now, I'll add to this, there is no hearing record on this legislation, this law, no report language, no conference report. All the FCC has to go on here are the four corners of the statute, and they should give uh, each provision its plain meeting. And this is a real tussle going on at the FCC right now about what that means. Now, it should be noted that this is not the first communications-related equal access discrimination statute. Uh, in the 1984 Cable Act, there is what's known as an anti-redlining provision for providers of video service. Uh, this has largely been enforced by local franchising authorities. There are no FCC rules but it is in the Communications Act as part of the cable uh, title. In addition, there has been lo the longstanding Section 202 uh, of the Communications Act requirement, which prohibits carriers from engaging in unreasonably discriminatory practices. So we've had for some time the ability, if there are discriminatory practices, or redlining for various groups to bring complaints to the FCC. Um, if you will look there, I think have been very few that I know of. One recently that was withdrawn, that's been it. The FCC initiated this proceeding by issuing a notice of inquiry last March. And there was substantial commonality in the comments the commission received about affirmative steps it should take to facilitate equal access to broadband service. And if you want to look further about these proposals, you should go to the recent report of the FCC's Communications Equity and Diversity Council. It's quite a lengthy report, but it contains a host of positive steps that providers, communities, groups can take to facilitate equal access. At the same time, even with this commonality, there was a large difference of opinion about where the commission should go in this proceeding. Uh, the public interest community alleged that broadband providers often engage in digital discrimination, and they proposed wide-ranging rules 
to address these, uh, many of which uh, are Title II-like in terms of the type of regulation they would impose on broadband providers. Um, at the same time, the industry said there are almost no episodes of discrimination and the FCC is not warranted in adopting anything more than narrow, less ownership measures. Now, one would think with all those comments, uh, the FCC could take them, narrow them down, and as they often do in proposed rulemakings, come out with a series of proposals that various interested parties would comment on. Uh, this FCC, however, is different because it's deadlocked two to two, two Democrats, two Republicans. So the NPRM does not advance proposed rules. Rather, it seems more like a notice of inquiry, raising a host of issues and proposals that were submitted by parties in their initial comments. And now it is seeking further comment on those. Uh, these comments will come in in the first quarter of 2023. And then where the FCC goes is going to depend, I think, on its composition. Will there be a third Democratic commissioner confirmed? If there is, then the proposals will head in the direction uh, more uh, satisfactory to the public interest community. And if not, the Democrats will have to negotiate with the two Republican commissioners. So in sum, this is a proceeding that has significant consequences for all parties, uh, but where there is little certainty about where it is headed and the eventual outcome. We're gonna learn more as the next year progresses and please stay in touch with us uh, if you want to know more. Thank you. And let me now turn it over to Chip to talk about the satellite processing measure. Thank you, Tom. In our podcast this year, reviewing commission actions in the context of promoting innovative uses of space, we've covered a number of commission orders, proposals, and proceedings, including in areas such as spectrum and communications issues implicated by new space activities like satellite refueling and in-orbit repair, mitigating the risks of orbital debris, and making more spectrum available in the 17 gigahertz band to support growing demand for space-based services. And this is only a partial list of open items before the commission. And the commission has also recently proposed the creation of a new space bureau in recognition of the increased importance of space-based economic activity within its licensing and spectrum management jurisdiction. In its open meeting today, the commission took yet another step uh, towards space, launching a rulemaking under part 25 of its rules to examine how it can streamline and expedite its review processes for satellite applications and provide more flexibility for applicants. Today's unanimous adoption of a notice of proposed rulemaking or NPRM is informed by the unprecedented number of satellite applications in the past half dozen years or so, including applications proposing constellations of thousands of satellites 
as well as numerous small satellite uh, operator applications uh, consisting of only one or two satellites. The FCC, through what is a rather short but broad in scope notice of proposed rulemaking, seeks comments on changes to its rules, policies, and practices to help commission processing stay apace with the volume of satellite applications it anticipates receiving in coming years. Uh, like the item that Tom covered, uh, the NPRM, at least in its draft form, uh, had very little uh, actual proposed rule text. The overarching goal of this proceeding is to facilitate the acceptance for filing of satellite and earth station applications, uh, which are a key first step to processing and eventually granting applications. The FCC solicits views from the public in general on guidance that may assist satellite and earth station applicants in speed application processing. So how does the commission envision more specifically that these objectives might be accomplished? In particular, the NPRM seeks comment on permitting applications from the same entity for more than one unbuilt non-geostationary orbit or NGSO satellite application in a given frequency band, something that's not possible today. The FCC asks whether such applications should be permitted only outside of an NGSO satellite processing round or more generally uh, at any time. In addition, the FCC proposes allowing consideration of satellite applications and petitions that request waiver of the table of frequency allocations to operate in a frequency band that does not have a current international allocation for the type of satellite use in question. Under the rules and procedures of the FCC today, such applications or petitions are simply dismissed. This has impacted, for example, more than one application seeking authority for inter-satellite links on spectrum not yet specifically allocated internationally for that purpose. Such inter-satellite links are a key element in many of the new large satellite constellations, but international allocations evolve at a slow pace given that World Radio Communications conferences only occur once every four years. So the commission is proposing to change course and process waiver applications uh, that seek frequencies that are not in conformance with existing international allocations, especially for receive operations that can be conducted immediately on an unprotected basis and are not in anticipation of or a placeholder for future services until a new international allocation is adopted. In the NPRM, the commission seeks views on what information and demonstrations such waiver applications to use non-allocated spectrum should include. In another area the NPRM covers, the commission seeks comments on how it should handle inconsistencies and omissions in satellite and earth station applications. Should the commission staff help applicants to correct such filings? Should the commission accept deficient applications for filing and seek comments from the public, which can address those deficiencies at the same time that the FCC completes its own review? Or should the FCC just simply quickly dismiss the applications without prejudice to the applicant making a later and corrected filing? In that context, the FCC asks whether the type of action taken should depend upon the type of missing information or other deficiency rather than adopting an across the board approach. The commission noted in the draft NPRM that its 
quote, placing an application on public notice as accepted for filing should not be seen as implying that the commission has no questions regarding the application or that the application is being looked upon favorably for grant, close quote. So the commission is setting up a, a rather open field for what action it might take in here. And then finally, I'll mention that the commission seeks the public's views on processing timelines for review of satellite and earth station applications and whether policy or role changes applicable to other radio frequency services might be applied in the satellite and earth station context. The FCC asks whether straightforward or routine uncontested satellite and earth station applications should be subject to short and, and objective processing times. And if so, what types of applications the commission should consider straightforward or routine? The NPRM will see comment on to what extent timelines should be codified or whether the commission should simply state goals or expectations for processing applications. As my intro suggested, 2023 should be a very busy year in the development of FCC rules and policies and administration of space-based activity within its jurisdiction. And its jurisdiction, as you may know from our earlier podcasts and what you will see as you follow these items, uh, is somewhat in question, or at least the scope of it is somewhat in question. Comments on this NPRM will be due 45 days after the NPRM is published in the Federal Register. Reply comments will be due 75 days after publication. The final text of the NPRM is not yet released as we do this podcast. Now I will turn the program over to my partner, Hank Kelly, who will cover wireless 911 location-based call routing that was addressed in the commission's open meeting today. Yeah, thanks very much, Chip. Um, in our June podcast, we discussed the public notice that the commission issued in their June meeting, uh, requesting that industry participants refresh the record from a 2018 NPRM related to uh, location-based routing for wireless 911 calls and text messages. Numerous parties did refresh the record, record resulting in today's NPRM, proposing rules that will require CMRS providers and covered text message providers to implement location-based routing for 911 calls and text messages nationwide, including calls and text messages originating in both legacy as well as next generation 911 jurisdictions. The commission's order first notes that there's a clear and material public safety benefit to requiring wireless providers to use location-based technologies to reduce the number of failed and delayed 911 calls from wireless handsets. Historically, wireless providers have relied on the location of a cell tower to direct a 911 call to the appropriate public safety answering point. However, this, this method's often inaccurate and requires PSAPs oftentimes to reroute or forward a call to a different PSAP that's more appropriate depending upon the location of the calling of the calling party. Now this results in, in delays on the calls getting to the appropriate PSAP, results in drop calls, and it's a, it's a serious issue and has caused problems for, um, in the, for uh, emergency service providers. The record showed that about 13% of all wireless calls are misrouted with significantly higher percentages of, of misrouted calls in, other region, in some regions. It's estimated that using location-based routing technologies other than the cell tower site would reduce misrouted calls by as much as 85%. Location-based routing as used by the commission includes various technologies 
that can identify the location of the originating calling party. And then having the wireless provider transmit this in a data format to the PSAPs. So the location can be based on the GPS and the handset. It can be based on the triangulated Wi-Fi signals as well, um, like in an indoor um, uh, uh, facility. Uh, but there's also network and software upgrades required by the wireless providers to transmit this information to the PSAPs and for the PSAPs to then incorporate the location into their own systems as well. And most importantly, all of this has to be done in a way that does not slow down the completion of the calls to the 911 operators, not just for the, the calls that come in from a wireless handset, but also that come in on landlines as well. So the commission's proposed uh, the following rules. First, it requires all CMS providers to deploy technology that support location-based routing in their internet protocol-based networks. And so for a wireless provider, this would be the typical 4, 4G and 5G networks and all prospective networks that become developed in the future. In addition, the rules would, would require the providers to use location-based routing to route all 911 voice calls originating on their, on their IP-based networks when their caller location information is a, one, available during the origination of the 911 call, and two, can identify the caller, caller's horizontal location within a radius of 165 meters at least 90% of the time. That's sort of a baseline uh, re requirement to, to ensure that the location is actually reliable. Nationwide CMRS providers would have six months from the effective date of the final rules to meet these requirements. Non-nationwide CMRS, CMRS providers and 911 text providers would have an additional up to 18 months from the effective date of the rules, I'm sorry, an additional year, up to 18 months total from the effective date of the final rules to meet these requirements. These rules haven't been adopted by the commission yet, and the commission's seeking further comment on their proposed rules. Some of the issues that the commission's seeking comment on include whether the non-nationwide wireless providers can and should meet the 18-month deadline that's being proposed, or even whether that should be shortened. The commission noted that none of the non-nationwide providers actually submitted comment uh, comments back in June in response to the, the June um, uh, the, the, the public notice. Now, where location-based information is not available, the commission continues to propose and has proposed that the cell tower-based routing would be the, the default routing where the location-based information is not available. Of course, this creates a problem for some of the PSAPs who have commented that they need to be informed during the call while the call is being actually transmitted by the wireless provider, what method was used to determine the location of the calling party, whether it be cell tower, some other form of location-based routing, and what specific technology was used. So the commission seeks comment on how PSAPs would implement the disclosure of these alternative methods mm -hmm. and whether there are other approaches the commission should consider in assisting PSAPs in being able to identify, I'm sorry, to efficiently implement the location information. Many of these same questions also apply to text messaging providers. So the commission seeks comments on these same issues for both CMRS providers, as well as text to 911 service providers. Initial comments are due 30 days from the date of publication in the Federal Register, and then reply comments are due 60 days after the date of publication. So that's a brief summary of, of the, today's uh, commission's action with respect to uh, 911 call routing. 
Right now, I'll turn it over to Mike, who will talk about improving accessible phone services. Mike? Thanks, Hank. Uh, the last item that we're uh, going to discuss from today's open meeting is the Commission's adoption of uh, notice of proposed rulemaking and order on reconsideration related to Internet Protocol Caption Telephone Service, or IPCTS. Uh, which is a form of TRS that enables persons with hearing difficulty to listen to a caller and read captions of what the caller is saying. As an overview, in the NPRM, the Commission seeks comments on a three-year compensation plan for IPCTS based on average cost for the period of July 1, 2023 through June 30th, 2026, subject to revised criteria for determining reasonable cost and to annual adjustments based on relevant cost factors. The commission proposes that IPCTS providers be compensated in different amounts depending on whether captioning for a telephone call is provided on a fully automatic or ASR basis or provided with the help of a communications assistant uh, through a CA. The Commission further proposes technical amendments to the Commission's rules to clarify the inflation adjustment factor um, and the uh, order on reconsideration for portion of today's order denies the petition for reconsideration of the Commission's uh, 2020 IPCTS compensation decisions. So as background, the Commission previously authorized the provision of IPCTS on a fully automatic basis using only ASR technology to generate captions without the participation of a CA. However, in its 2020 uh, IPCTS compensation order, the Commission did not adopt a separate ASR-only compensation plan formula, concluding it did not yet have sufficient experience with uh, fully automated IPCTS to accurately estimate the relevant costs. In this NPRM, the Commission proposes a separate ASR-only compensation formula and seeks comments on its proposal. Currently, all IP CTS providers receive TRS fund compensation at the same permanent level, regardless of the mode used. However, the Commission notes that reports appear um, to confirm that there are significant differences in the costs attributable to each mode of caption delivery. For example, the TRS fund administrator reports that the weighted average of provider costs attributable to ASR only IPCTS uh, expenses plus 10% uh, margin in 2021 was uh, just north of 69 cents, 30 cents less than the average for CA assisted delivery. In addition, the Commission states that the two service modes offer different service performances. 
But the commission also states that if the average cost-based compensation formula is applied to both modes, that would confer above average profits on those IP CTS providers that produce captions predominantly or exclusively in the ASR only mode. As a result, the commission proposes that during the next compensation periods, different levels of per minute compensation be applicable to each mode with the compensation formula aligned with the reasonable cost attributable to that mode. The commission makes several proposals related to ASR only compensation. At a high level, I'll describe uh, a couple of those. Uh, the proposals relate to identifying whether or not calls are uh, truly ASR only calls or are CA calls. Um, to accommodate whether or not uh, a call is initiated in one mode and transferred to a different mode. Um, and that's important for the uh, uh, determination of which compensation formula would apply to um, that call. Identifying the, uh, the commission also proposes um, identifying the cost of ASR only IP CTS uh, for cost reporting purposes and proposes expanding allowable costs, uh, such as uh, proposing and seeking comments on uh, permitting allowable costs to include the cost of research and development to enhance functional equivalency of IPCTS um, beyond the mandatory minimum standards uh, for service quality and harmonizing the IPCTS uh, compensation methodology uh, with the IP relay ruling, which created an exception to the recovery of costs for the assignment, um, obtaining and having assigned to the provider a telephone number um, as part of the service. The commission proposes to allow the recovery of those costs for IPCTP. The commission also proposes to permit uh, TRS support for the reasonable cost of developing, maintaining, and providing downloadable software and web-based applications to enable users to access IP CTS from off-the-shelf user devices. Um, and further, the commission uh, proposes that the total compensation paid to all providers should allow for an average recovery of an operating margin above allowable expenses within a zone of reasonableness at 7.75% to 12.35%. The commission seeks comments on its proposals and its assumptions about the ASR only service um, and the compensation formula proposed in today's order and invites comments on potential alternative approaches um, to its proposals. Comments are due 30 days after publication in the Federal Register. And reply comments are due 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. And that's our first take of the Commission's December uh, open meeting. Uh, we'd like to wish everybody happy holidays, and we'll see everyone next year. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management. <laughs>